Hello, folks. Wow, is it really August? Time sure flies. But not to worry, because that just means there's always something new to listen to in the Chilling Entertainment family of shows. Don't miss the latest episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, airing on Mondays. And of course, don't forget Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSurley, and Drew Blood's Dark Tales. You can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Slow down just a little bit and join us for a scary good time. We're waiting for you. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 13, Episode 13. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Heinrich von Wolfcastle and Corpse Child. Tonight, we'll hear stories of terrifying tapes, daddy-daughter disasters, and watery weirdness. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu today to sign up. Thank you for your support. Now... It's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Some people just don't know what to do with themselves sometimes. They get bored. They get restless. They get stressed. And they turn to certain methods of recreation to get the rush they need. And no, I'm not talking about having a good old-fashioned listen at the feet of a storyteller. But some methods are not only more dangerous than others, they could also be a bit eccentric. Imagine, then, a situation where an unexpected source produces sensation that's not only remarkable, but unescapable. Without further ado, I present to you Sonatus Satinae. They handed me the cassette in a clear, nondescript case. A black marker scrawled across the side of it teased. For a good time. It won't be anything like you're expecting, they warned. There are no guitars, and no one even utters Satan. Well, that seems like a missed opportunity, I suggested. No one laughed. It began with a drum. The beat was slow, steady. I counted the seconds between thumps just to be sure that there was indeed a structure to what I was hearing. The static hissed and panned its way back and forth between my ears before finally finding residence at the center of my skull. And then the thumping began. Between beats, there wasn't silence exactly. I'm not quite sure what it was. A dry resonance. I imagined someone with sharp fingernails dragging their hand across a sheet of leather. That's when I realized it was working, because I saw it. I was in a damp basement with concrete walls painted in firm shadows. There was a bound girl to a wooden chair under the glow of a hanging light bulb. Her face was hidden from me. Her head slumped forward, tucked awkwardly onto her chest. I was overcome by a burst of excitement as I approached my gift from behind, admiring the grooves carved into her back like trails of cherry-colored rivers. I went to caress their depths, but was taken aback by the appearance of my fingers. My hands, my arms, my entire body was translucent, like I'd been remade out of jellyfish flesh. I waved my hand over, mesmerized by the glow of my non-skin, and then gently lowered a fingertip into her wounds. I could almost sense the curvature of her lacerations, the raised tissue bulging to create defined valleys. Even though I couldn't actually touch her, I pressed into those gashes, feeling her molecules scatter as they made way for my own. And if I had a voice, it might have uttered a sound of pleasure. What should have been disbelief of the entire experience was replaced by exhilaration as I examined my surroundings, gleeful to find myself in another time, another place. It had been such a long pursuit 
to find this rumored world between worlds that I had almost doubted it existed. A long staircase led from the basement to the rest of the house, and I wanted to explore further to find where and when I might be. But it was too hard to leave the girl. I made my way around the chair, wondering what her face might look like. I hoped she had dimples. Her chin sat in a pool of vivid red blood that was collected across her ample chest. I imagined that she was exhausted, tired from thrashing about during whatever torture she endured. I lowered myself to look into her eyes, and to my delight, I found that they'd been removed. I drifted closer with a curiosity for what might happen if more of our parts overlapped, but my attention was snagged by a long, dull dragging sound. It pulled across the floor above me in shuddered movements. It seemed impossible. The only thing that could move in a place like this would have been someone or something like me. A momentary hint of intrigue formed at the thought of finding camaraderie after such a lonely, misunderstood life. The feeling quickly deflated as I considered the likelihood that I would again be shamed and judged for my earnest wants, needs. With agitation tearing at my elated mood, I made my way to the base of the staircase. I paused to listen for the sound again, but it had become so faint that I wasn't quite sure I was even hearing it. A strange effect from the tape, I considered. I longed to return to the girl so beautifully fixed in her agony, but it didn't matter. I wouldn't be able to fully invest my attention back into her, without first surveying the rest of the house. I moved easily over the steps, recognizing for the first time how much my physical body regularly labored in its movements. Without it, I simply glided with no wasted effort. My ascent led me to a dark kitchen where a set of broken blinds traced slices of moonlight across a linoleum floor. The kitchen table was covered in the shredded remains of a newspaper. An article about withdrawing troops from Vietnam had been soiled by what I presumed were bodily fluids and other organic materials. The whole room seemed to be furnished in nauseating gold and orange patterns. A clock hanging from the wall stared back at me, its hands pinned in place. A long hallway extended beyond the kitchen like a portal into darkness. I listened intently examining its shadows from where I stood. There was no sign of any life at all. I surprised myself with my own hesitation to venture into that dark tunnel. I mean, what was there to fear anyway? Yet between the shadows, I could have sworn I saw something move. A terrible screeching sound ripped at my eardrums, and I woke back in my bedroom, gasping for air as I tore the headphones from my head. They were drenched in sweat. My pulse thudded so loudly in my ear that it was difficult to think straight. I dabbed my forehead as I rewound the tape, readying myself for a second journey. Part of me wanted to go search for a news story about kidnapped or tortured women in the 1960s, but I'd need more information to find anything worthwhile. I needed something tangible, like an address, I thought. But let's be honest, I just wanted to see her again. 
that steady, dry drumbeat panned slowly, then rapidly between my ears. Then came the static hiss over the sound of something raking their fingernails through flesh. With the exhale of a deep breath, I found myself in the basement again. The girl was bound to the wooden chair just as before, but I could swear there was another wound on her neck, something long and jagged that ran from her shoulder down and around her torso. And seen that one before. Had I? But it must have already been there, I told myself, because it certainly wasn't something I was able to create. Habitually, I raised a hand to touch her, forgetting that it would be impossible. Nonetheless, I moved my fingers into that delicate space between her ribs, just beside her silent heart. Her molecules scattered the same way it did before. I lingered, hoping to eventually find a sense of their friction. What good was her body to me if I couldn't affect it? I could feel the seams of my composure starting to fray as flashes of rage built in my mind, and then the dragging started again in long, slow movements. There was no time to waste with the girl anymore. I made my way for the kitchen. I rooted myself at the table and peered into the great darkness of the long hallway. I could make the outline of something scaly, humanoid in form. I crouched over what I presumed was the body of a dog. I shrank back as the sudden heft of the situation collapsed upon me. I truly knew nothing of the beings that lurked there, their wants, their needs. I pressed backward until, to my surprise, I found myself outside. Mind your cord, came a soft voice. I turned and saw a slim feminine silhouette lurking in the shadows of a bush from a neighbor's yard. She seemed to read my confusion. Your cord, she urged again. I looked down and saw a thin silver thread protruding from my stomach. It ran back through the wall of the house, but she was right. It was snagged on the physical structure of the wall. If that breaks, she started. I struggled to find any kind of voice to communicate with her. Before I could utter even a sound, she retreated into the shadows of the bushes and seemed to disappear altogether. I tugged on the cord, but as it stretched, it looked like as if it might tear. I loosened my grip and returned to the wall, hoping to make slack. It drooped to the ground like an effervescent fishing line. As I stood at the wall of the house, I recognized for the first time that something seemed off about the world I was in, as if the measurements weren't quite right. I turned my attention to the individual bricks of the wall and placed my hand upon them. I couldn't feel their texture, but I could feel them. It was as if I had developed a new sense of touch that could detect something, even if I didn't quite have the vocabulary to describe it. The house, the whole world I was in, felt ill. I placed my ear closer to the wall, wondering if I might detect something else. It had no sensation at all until it began to quiver. Then it started to tremble pulled back and saw the hideous scaled face of a man-shaped worm pushing its way through the wall. It lunged at me, its mouth open, suckling and squelching the air. It flew backward until the tension of the silver cord briefly got me, and then snapped with a pop. My eyes shot open, and I was back in my bedroom, 
I settled my gaze on the rotating fan above my bed as I caught my breath. The tape droned on with its distorted drumbeat. I removed my headphones before it could reach its screeching end. I wondered if I managed to wake up before the cord had severed. Maybe waking up was the right way to think about it altogether. What if it was all just a dream? I rose from the bed, contented by my usual reflection, as I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I needed to process what I'd experienced. I needed answers. And I thought to return to the group who sold me the tape. The door of my bedroom opened to the hallway, and I walked in a daze out to my car with images of the girl racing through my mind. Just as I made my way outside, I realized I'd forgotten my car keys. I turned around, was halted by the brick wall of the house. It was night again, and everything looked the same as if I hadn't woken up at all. But my hands, my body, everything about me was physical. What the is going on, I muttered. Hearing my own voice brought me relief that I could speak again. I placed my hand against the wall and was comforted to feel its real texture this time. I pulled back as I remembered the face of the scaled creature. Hey! I called out, turning to the shadows of the bushes. Help! I was met by silence. I moved closer, searching the shadows for outlines of somebody hiding there. A strange mound of something hidden in the twigs and branches of the foliage. I grasped for it and managed to pull it out with a tug. It was, unmistakably, a flayed hand. It looked like the skin had been sucked right off of it. The muscle tissue glistened with a gore as I rolled it over my grasp. Ooh, Behind me, a terrible slurping sound belched out from the wall of the house. The creature stepped through it as if it were merely a hologram. I ran to the street, anywhere to get away from that nightmare thing, dragging its long, wet tail across the ground after. The street was empty except for long shadows cast by the moon's glow. If the measurements of this place were off before, they were entirely skewed by the time I made it to the road. Houses bent on strange angles and the sidewalks seemed to swirl into an infinite distance. I felt like I was inside a shrinking soap bubble. It's something like that, I heard a voice suggest. It was the same smooth whisper I'd heard before, I couldn't find where she was coming from. What? I asked. What's going on? Help me. But I was met by silence. Help me, I called again. The warm creature continued after me. It was slow, but it didn't seem to tire. I ran up a driveway to a door and felt a burst of hope as I turned the doorknob and found it unlocked. I darted inside to look for anything that might help me way out, a weapon, anything. But when I came to the kitchen, I froze with a horrible realization. I'd entered the very same house I was running from. I backed slowly away from the long black hallway, away from the kitchen, until I was at the staircase, unsure of how I ended up back where I started from. With resignation, I returned to the darkness of the basement, illuminated by the glow of one hanging light. It swung, throwing shadows across the damp concrete walls. 
The girl, unconscious in her chair, sat poised over the pool of blood at her feet. I crept towards her, examining the stilted movement of her chest. Who are you? I asked in a whisper. What is this place? She lifted her head slowly as she came to consciousness, peering at me through her absent black socket eyes. Her jaw fell open, unsheathing a deafening, shrieking scream. I moved my hands to my ears, but I could do nothing to abate the sound of her shrill, squealing voice. Stop, I shouted. What do you want from me? Just stop screaming. And she did stop. A whispering voice with the same dry resonance of the recording, she told me, You saw truth, and you found it. What does that mean? I asked. I peered past her and found a shadow, something that looked like the start of a dark passageway. What do you want? It is what you want. Knowledge, power, otherworldly delights. I nodded dumbly, while wondering if I could make it past her to the tunnel. I've given you this knowledge. This isn't knowledge, this is a wormhole, I spat felt my body tense as I shifted my weight and prepared to run. The tape you listened to did not bring you anywhere but within. You are experiencing your true nature. She staggered forward and started movements as she spoke. The tops of her feet dragged across the floor as if she were suspended by an invisible noose. But my cord. I gestured to my stomach with panic. You are, within your own mind, inhabiting a world of your own creation. She paused, waiting for her words to register. This is the greatest secret of all truths. It is all you, in here just as it is in your physical world out there. She gestured to the shadowed hallway behind her. What? I protested. Who are you? I asked. Her open mouth stretched to form a pained smile. I am you, born to suffer for your pleasure. I grimaced as she approached. Where are you? You reincarnated into all existences simultaneously with a mere illusion of separation. She raised her hand up to reach for me, but I sidestepped her and dashed for the blackness of the shadowy doorway. Just as we suffer, so too shall you, she called after me. The tunnel was cold and dark, with trails of bones littering the ground. It was long, but it looked like there was an end to it. A window of light rippled in the distance like a mirage. It grew in size as I approached it, but it also seemed infinitely far as if I might never reach it. It was like peering into another world. It was a collage of ceiling tiles and a track lighting system. I was looking up at a man in a white doctor's coat. He was gesturing towards the window, but speaking to other people I couldn't see. Unfortunately, there's nothing else we can do for him but wait. His brain activity is excellent. This is truly unlike anything I've ever seen before. But when I talk to him, it looks like he understands me, a voice sobbed. I recognized it instantly. It was my mother. Like I said, his brain activity is excellent. We just can't find a source for the paralysis. 
But that's all this is. Paralysis. He's not in a coma. My mom continued to sob. Listen, this is going to be a long journey, and I don't just mean for your son. The doctor paused, shifting his approach. Go home. Have a good dinner. Get some rest. This isn't the kind of thing you wait out and overcome, but rather something you have to learn how to live with. My mom continued to cry quietly. I can't tell you if you'll wake up from this in a week or a year or decades from now. I think you and your husband need to have a conversation about what it will be like to live with your son in this kind of condition indefinitely. I understand. My mom relented between choked sobs. I want to give you the name of someone to talk to. He scribbled something on a piece of paper as he went on. I think it could be good to process this with a therapist who specializes in helping families make adjustments to figure out what this new normal is going to look like. But for now, right now, it's day one at a time. I watched on, looking blankly at the ceiling tiles, as the doctor moved about the room. Take care of today, and tomorrow we'll take care of tomorrow, he encouraged. Several keyboard clicks punctuated the silence as the door to the room opened and closed. The doctor stood in the frame of the window again, looking right at me. Can you see me? I asked. He sighed. Look at me, I shouted, jumping up and waving my hands. I'm right here. You can hear me. The doctor brought two fingers to the window, paused and gestured it closed, encasing me in darkness. My stomach dropped, and I fell to my knees with a burst of loneliness. And that's when I realized I wasn't alone at all. Somewhere in the darkness behind me, a squelching grumble reverberated through the blackness, followed by a shuddering, wet, dragging sound. I hope you enjoyed Sonatus Satinae by Heinrich von Wolfcastle, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash h-v-wolfcastle. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash h Dash V dash W O L F C A S T L E. Heinrich von Wolfcastle is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association and a member of the Great Lakes Association of Horror Writers, of which several members, past and present, have appeared on this program. His work has appeared in multiple anthologies and magazines. Though he lives the life of a recluse, he's been known to emerge from the shadows for trick-or-treaters on Halloween night. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'd like to say this is a cautionary tale of not doing things you shouldn't be doing. But you know what? I think it's actually a healthy reminder that one can do a little too much introspection. Never know what's going to come wriggling out. While the mind is a tenuous thing, for some so is reality. Come then for our next tale, in which we find a father, a loving dad, on a day with his daughter, though it turns out he has something he's hiding from her, something no dad would ever want his child to know. Of course, it would seem that he's keeping secrets from himself as well. Without further ado, I present to you The Ones in Between. He spits onto the sidewalk, and a splash of saliva laced with bright red phlegm stares back at him. He studies it, attempting to take a mental measurement of its ingredients, parts blood to sput him, places his foot over the glob, and smears it into the sidewalk like a discarded cigarette, making sure to eliminate it before his daughter sees. She holds a cluster of his fingers, her grip sticky, where traces of maple syrup linger from their pancake breakfast an hour earlier. She swings his arm back and forth while singing songs he's never heard. Every week brings some amount of culture shock as he immerses himself in cocoa time as he calls it. Over breakfast, he learned about Princess Jasmine's pet dagger named Raja, a new enthusiasm replacing the previous week's talk of Cinderella's mouse friends, whose names he couldn't remember. She spoke with such eagerness about them that he called her mother to ask for permission to buy her two pet mice. He was prepared to get them a cage, toys, wheels, the whole thing, but was met with stern disapproval. You want to give two pet mices to Colette, Machu? She asked. He hated the way she pronounced his name. It sounded like he was advertising a package of bad chewing gum named Machu. You need to get your head checked. He paused to find his words before responding, wanting to defend his request, but knowing the effort would be a wasted one. She despised him with a hatred that had been nurtured for years. By this point, it extended beyond his behaviors and became a loathing for who he was, his personhood. He could tolerate the way she felt about him, but he was disturbed by the way her feelings intruded upon his relationship with Colette. I'm sorry, he finally managed. Don't contact me unless it's an emergency. She scoffed and ended the call. As he thought about it, he remembered that he first coughed up blood after that conversation. He had stepped out to the parking lot of his apartment complex, 
while Colette napped on his couch, and he was still looking at his phone when a dry cough took him by surprise. He thought nothing of it until he wiped the spittle from his phone screen and noticed that the droplets were colored. His first instinct was to disregard what he saw, maybe even write it off as something as innocuous as an effect of dry weather. On the other hand, maybe it had something to do with his recent breathing difficulties. He traced his finger over his bloodied screen once more to confirm what he saw. Dry weather, he tried again. The hanging taste of iron in his mouth deflated his denial. Daddy, are you even listening? Colette asked, swinging his arms. Yes, Coco Baby, what is it? He replies with rusted metal on his tongue. You weren't paying attention, she insisted. She tugs on his arm. I was, but I was trying to remember. What are the names of Cinderella's most friends? Gus and Jack, she replies. Ah, that's right. But you weren't listening. I'm listening now, Coco. What do you want to tell Daddy? I was singing about Raja. She holds the last syllable of his name. Okay, baby. Daddy's with you and here she says, swinging her arm in return. The sun leaves a negative imprint on his sight when he turns back toward her. Daddy! Colette yells again, smiling up at him. Fly me! She places both of her hands on Matthew's forearm before jumping into the air. Fly you? It's so early for flying, he sighs. She's already in the air, and he lifts her to the height of his chest as she hangs from him. Where's our Coco going? he asks. Higher, she giggles. Air Coco wants to go into the sky, huh? He confirms. Bends down into a squat, grabs her under the armpits, and lifts her above his head. And we have takeoff, he yells, his voice finding his enthusiasm. Beyond them, a man walking his dog watches with paws. Colette laughs and puts her arms out like wings. Higher! To the moon, Matthew asks. Yeah! Lowers down again and raises her above his head. Go to hit your head on the clouds. Higher, she commands. Matthew lowers once more and regains his grip on her. As he lifts, a cough tears at his lungs, forces its way out of his mouth, and sprays Colette's pink shirt with fresh blood. Matthew would never call Colette an accident, but she was a surprise. He and Clara had only been dating a few months before she broke the news to him that she missed her period. She revealed her secret in a whisper at the end of a long night and stated it as a confession of sorts. Half ready to problem solve the situation and simultaneously hoping Matthew would respond with excitement about the pregnancy. After a beat of silence, Clara slapped his arm and called him a colo. In the next breath, she assured him that she was going to have an abortion and he wouldn't have to worry about being tied down by her. She shot up from her bed to start gathering her things to leave. Matthew grabbed her around the waist, pulled her in close to hug her. This is the best day and the best news of my life, he said with a face pressed into her stomach already soft voice further muted by her sweater. He declared it as an affirmation, 
choosing to believe his words as he said them. Clara softened her stance and let her arms fall around his back. All the pressure formed in her throat as she stood at the edge of the bed in Matthew's grasp. For a moment, she felt safe there in his embrace. You're still a cold, she said with a small chuckle. She raised a hand to wipe a tear from her eye. The best day, Matthew repeated to himself before kissing her belly. By all measurable accounts, Clara had an easy pregnancy. Her nausea was mild, and she managed to maintain her energy, despite disrupted sleep. Matthew was also mindful not to stir the waters with her. He did as he was asked, and tended to her needs while preparing a room in the apartment for their baby girl. When Colette arrived in the world, Matthew was entranced by her. He was mesmerized by her little body and the way she moved it, nestling into comfortable naps on his chest. He would gaze at her small fingers and toes as he held them in his hand, disbelieving that they might ever grow into adult-sized appendages. In his love for her, he also felt heartbreak by imagining with real understanding the pain that might come from harm befalling her. With bewilderment, he would remember his mom slapping or spanking him could never imagine feeling any kind of violent wish toward his child. When Colette made it home to Matthew's apartment, the push-and-pull dynamic of his relationship with Clara intensified. Significant conversations that they should have had prior to Colette's birth were lost to meaningless verbal sparring matches that consumed their time instead. When it came to sleep training, Clara insisted on letting Colette cry it out she was the reader of two of them and demanded that, after her nightly feeding, Colette be placed in her crib and left to soothe herself to sleep. She needs to learn, Matthew, she would say. She's fed. She has a clean diaper. She needs to learn to sleep on her own now. Matthew would quietly nod over his food as he sat at the kitchen table, eating while Colette cried through the door of her bedroom down the hall. Clara would glare at him as he ate suspecting that he was criticizing her in his mind. When they talked about caring for Colette, they would lock in a battle of wills. Clara's vocal rage splattering against Matthew's wall of silence. They didn't talk about Colette. They wouldn't talk much at all. After their dinners, Clara went to bed by herself, while Matthew stayed in the family room to watch TV. Clara would take the monitor with her, while Matthew fell in and out of sleep on the couch all night. One night, Matthew broke protocol, shifting the pillow under his head for what seemed like the 40th time in five hours. He muted the television's rebroadcast of a basketball highlight to listen for evidence that Clara was tending to the baby. When he didn't hear Clara's voice, he got up and made his way there. He nudged the door open and found Colette poised in her swaddle in the middle of her crib placed her gently over his shoulder and made shushing sounds, quieting her as he bounced his knees and bobbed his way around the room. Her lips made smacking sounds against his neck. First, they walked to the changing table, illuminated by the warm glow of a nightlight coming from the wall. Then he spun and danced with her over to the nursing chair in the corner of the room, where a humidifier draped them in a fog. He sat with Colette lying across his chest next to a small table, covered in dirty tissues, empty water bottles, and miscellaneous 
breast pump supplies. Colette's eyes locked on his, and she stuck out her tongue briefly before pulling it back into her mouth. Matthew stuck his tongue out to her in return, speaking to her in their shared nonverbal language. You're so special to me, Coco, he whispered. You know that, don't you? Colette released a short sigh. I could sit here for hours, days, and it would only feel like minutes. It was the sincerest feeling he had when he watched her, the way he loved her, and witnessed her unconditionally. When it's just you and me, there's nothing else. He leaned in to kiss her warm forehead. This is what keeps me going, my time with you, my Coco time. Beyond the doorway to Colette's room, Matthew heard the squeaking of the floor in the hall, and his heart dropped. Soon, Clara would take Colette from him, scolding him for teaching the baby to seek attention in the middle of the night. In that moment, Matthew said a silent prayer that he wished to be proved wrong, that maybe Clara would rejoin them with warmth, or that she might find appreciation for the soft moment she saw. But alas, Clara stole Colette from his arms, placed her back in her crib as his mind settled on the memory of that night. He felt the weight of his heart shift. Colette screams at the sight of blood on her shirt. Matthew brings her in and hugs her close, kissing the top of her head resting against his chest. She clings to him as tightly as he holds her. Everything will be okay, he assures her. Matthew lifts Colette and carries her to her bedroom in his apartment. A shrine to Disney princesses. Are you okay? She asks as her head pokes through her new shirt. I am, Matthew answers. Colette tilts her head in confusion. Nothing to worry about, he says, raising her blood-stained shirt as a crumpled ball in his hand. Colette searches his face. Coco, he sighs. Can we still have fun today? Colette examines his eyes, quietly, doubting. How about we go to the carnival, he proposes. I bet I can win you a really big stuffed tiger, just like Raja. Colette sniffles back tears before she nods in agreement with the idea. Good, and you'll see. Everything is okay. He places Colette in a passenger seat of his car with a doll in her lap. After starting the car, he closes the sunroof, so they can continue talking. When I was just a little bit older than you, I got pretty sick, he begins. Colette turns her gaze from the doll, and he watches her hands work to braid the doll's hair. He's captivated by her fine motor movements, disbelieving that she came from him, that he has anything to do with her existence, as perfect as she is. You did? She asks. Yep, real bad, he says. And you got really sick once, too, with a really high fever, just like I had. I did? Colette asks. She turns her back to the doll, her small fingers working to separate the three portions of her doll's hair. Yep, he says. You were only six months old. Matthew pauses, recounting the story privately, before articulating the details that would be appropriate for a five-year-old. He remembers that night with Colette's fever, how she eased into his arms, and over his shoulder, how they danced around her room. Sure, she felt warm in his grasp. He had no idea just how warm she was. A part of him believed, wished, 
Her crying was simply because she wanted him and not Clara. I remember, he recalls, waking up in the couch and hearing you cry in your bedroom, and I thought, maybe she just needs some dad time. So I marched right into your bedroom and picked you up. He smiles against the pressure building against his eyes, and we danced together. I bet I liked that, she interjects. You did, and me too. He worked to keep his mind from racing. Then your mom wanted a turn taking care of you, and I got mad that she wouldn't let me help you, so Daddy did a bad thing. What did you do? Well, you know how sometimes when you get mad you need to take a time out? Yeah? Well, Daddy took a time out. A long one. He breaks from the story to remember the self-losing drunk girl at a bar, and he hears the horrible creaking sound of her bed made when it thumped against the wall. And when I came back, your mom was taking your temperature. The thermometer said it was over 105 degrees. Is that high? Real high, he acknowledges. But I went into your room and you saw me and you stopped crying. I did. Yep, just like that, Matthew replies. I did a lot of praying that night, he nods. I just wanted you to finally feel better. And when I came into your room, you looked at me and just gave me a big smile with that toothless mouth you had. Just so happy to see you, Dad. I guess I missed you, Colette suggests. I, I guess so, he agrees. His attention stays with the memory, his throat overcome by gravel, as he pleads with Clara again and again to take Colette to the hospital. Her words echo in his ears. Why are you doing this? When he went into Colette's room, she had smiled, that was true. She wasn't looking at him, and he knew that. She'd been looking at the dark hallway through the doorway behind him, her gaze fixed on the shadows over his shoulder called by some creature that only she could see. And when Matthew saw her toothless grin, it wasn't a comfort in the way he described it, because it wasn't directed at him. It was for whatever it was that stood in the darkness beyond him. When Colette died that night, so did everything within him. Matthew pulls into the parking lot at the fairgrounds, churning the gravel under the wheels of his car. As they make their way to the ticket tent, Colette swings his arm. She's trying to skip rather than walk, and Matthew maintains an uncomfortable pace to keep up. Ahead, the ticket booth is a smaller version of the giant yellow and orange and white striped tent behind it, which houses an array of benches where families sit at various stages of lunch. The Ferris wheel stands over everything. Matthew and Colette approach the fat man with a bulbous nose perched behind the ticket counter. What'll it be? he asks, his voice lost in the collective roar of the games and rides. Twenty tickets, Matthew replies. He pushes his cash forward and turns to Colette. Think that'll do it? he asks. Colette nods while biting her lip. I think so, the man says with a smirk. And you can always come back for more. Thank you, Matthew replies. He takes Colette's hand and squeezes it as they walk through the large tent. When they reach a cotton candy stand at a fork in the path, Matthew kneels down to Coco's level to speak to her. We can do anything you want, he promises. 
We can still have fun. A trio of small children break formation to walk around Matthew. Colette watches as they pass. I want Raja, she shouts. Raja, that's right, he affirms. He wipes at the corner of his mouth. We have to find a game where they're offering him as a prize. Let's keep on the lookout. Matthew places his hands on his knees and pushes himself to stand. I'll follow you, he says with a cough. He grabs her hand and matches her pace. Raja! Colette shouts with a jump. She's pointing at a game called Hot Shot Hoops, which has a row of giant stuffed animals for prizes. Sitting at the top of the game to the right of the basketball hoop is a huge tiger fit to be called Raja. All right, all right, Daddy's on the case, he replies. The man at the booth welcomes him. You hit one shot, you get a small prize. You hit two shots, you get a big prize. Matthew looks at the hoops. What do you think? Will that tiger do the trick? He asks Colette. Yeah, you can do it, she shouts back. Let me see that ball, Matthew says to the man running the game. It's a regulation ball, no funny business here. He shows the ball to Matthew, eyeing him cautiously. Just six tickets get you three tries, he informs. Matthew takes the ball and notices a small paper cut in his forefinger. It strikes him as funny that despite the implications of his breathing and bleeding problem, there's still healing happening within him. No funny business. Small cough cuts off his words. I'm sorry. He looks at the hoops and takes a few dribbles. No funny business, the man confirms. You know, I used to be pretty good back in my day. He turns to Colette and smiles before handing the man a fistful of tickets. A bead of sweat creeps across his brow. I bet, says the man. You can do it, Daddy. Colette shouts. All right. One of two right now, Matthew says. Bounces the ball, places it firmly in his right hand and shoots it into the air. His first attempt falls short and left. Uh-oh. That's all right. You've got another two tries, the attendant encourages. But you're looking a little pale, son. It's just a game, no real pressure here. No, that's just embarrassing. Matthew says with a rather small cough under his breath. We got this one, Coco, he whispers. He takes a couple of quick dribbles and puts up his shot. Again, it falls short, too far to the left. Ouch, the man taunts. You've got one more try for a small prize if you want it. No, I'm going for the tiger. Add three more shots. Matthew instructs and hands the attendant another wad of tickets. You got it, boss, he responds. Let's get you that tiger. Take it home to a pretty lady. Matthew coughs into his hand, and the taste of metal overtakes his mouth. He smiles and winks at Colette before dribbling the ball again. He looks back at the basket and sees that it is higher and farther away since his last shot. You're not moving these things, are you? he asks. No, the attendant replies with a look of boredom mixed with impatience. Matthew wipes the sweat off of his forehead balances the ball again, stopping to cough into his elbow. More metal. All right, he mutters. Oh, jeez, man says with sudden interest. He squints at Matthew. Sir, I, 
I think you're bleeding. Mm. Matthew asks for a clarification, having difficulty hearing him over the boring sound of the crowd and games. Your teeth, I think, the man says behind his pointed finger. Matthew touches his hand to his mouth where a string of blood hangs from his lip. He mutters something indecipherable and coughs again, this time spewing blood all over the basketball in his hand. Colette shrieks and begins to cry. I think we need a doctor here, the attendant calls to the crowd. Matthew turns to the crowd in a daze with blood still dripping from his lips. He chokes in a series of coughs and more blood spills from his mouth. The crowd circles around him, their phones pointed at his folding body. Colette grabs Matthew's arms and works to help him stand on his feet. The attendant takes a radio from behind the counter and calls for emergency medical services as Matthew falls to the ground. His black is flat against the grass and his head is turned toward the stuffed tiger sitting above the basketball hoop. He looks for Colette but he cannot find her. Coco, he mumbles. More coughs follow, spurting blood into the air in popping streams. He loses strength in his body and his head falls to the side. He sees the spectators gathered around him. Beyond them, past their camera lights, is the darkness of a tent. Matthew fixes his gaze there and feels himself drift toward the shadows. Within them, he notices a dark figure in a cloak. He's calming, so gentle in his approach from the darkness that Matthew smiles. Around his body, crowds coalesce into a mass to watch as the attendant, running hotshot hoops, slams his fist into Matthew's chest. But Matthew is no longer there. He's swimming in dark waves, rolling over endless black hills, until he arrives at a darkened room. There, he's met by the thick aroma of milk, an old and familiar smell, enriched by the humidifier's nostalgic fog. The cloaked figure is with him. He stands over a crib tucked away in the corner of the room. As Matthew approaches, the figure drifts aside and out of view. He finds Colette on her back, swaddled with her arms out and reaching toward a mobile hanging over her. When she sees him, she shifts her focus from the mobile to her father and smiles at him with her toothless grin. Matthew places her gently against his chest and dances with her towards a chair. He reaches for a bottle from a small table and feeds it to her. Her eyebrows raise in quizzical surprise. Slowly, she waves her hands about as if she's conducting an imaginary symphony. Matthew leans his head back into the chair with a sense of ease and notices the clock on the wall. It raids as midnight, the second hand, moving slowly in its attempt to move from one number to the next. But it never jumps or stutters. It's frozen in between the two markers, unable to leave one for the next. No matter what, when it's just us, there's nothing else. Matthew whispers. He leans in to kiss Colette on the forehead. This is what kept me going, waiting for my time with you. My Coco time. I hope you enjoyed The Ones in Between by Heinrich von Wolfcastle as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, 
I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash h dash v dash wolfcastle. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash h dash v dash w-o-l-f-c-a-s-t-l-e. If you especially like the ones in between, it was recently featured in Blackberry Blood and Sonata's Satinay appeared in Heavy Battle Nightmares earlier this year. Look for them wherever fine stories are just bleeding for your attention. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented authors stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upload. And be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program and that me, Otis Chiry, sent you. It means more to me than you could imagine, and I'm sure he would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured authors. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. Subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. 
Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>